This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 42, and we're recording on Friday, February 28th. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. Rebecca, you're not feeling well, but you're here, and that's that's hero work. I'm here. I'm hopped up on all kinds of goofballs, so <laughs> <laughs> anything could happen today. We'll see. Yeah, socially acceptable uh, mind alteration is what yes, happens. Yeah, I, uh, I missed you last week, but I enjoyed listening to you and Amanda. Oh, we had a good time. Uh, always. She's fantastic. So I'm happy She's to good. be back in my highly medicated state. Yep. Um, I guess while we're talking about other shows, I was also the host, uh, co-host with our friend and co-worker, colleague, um, best bud Rita Mead on the Dear Book Nerd podcast. And if you listen to this show and still have not checked out the Dear Book Nerd podcast, you should go do that. And next week, Rita has more guests and more questions about love and life and literary etiquette and a whole bunch of interesting topics about books. And you were the host for the first couple of weeks. So much um, fun. The new episode, if you're hearing this, that should be available. You can go to iTunes, Dear Book Nerd, or the show notes uh, for this show, which is at, which are always at bookriot.com slash podcast. So. All right. Should we do some quick follow-up? we got a lot of little interesting things today. And then we have a bunch of meaty stuff. And Yeah, we do. So uh, let's, get, let's get to the appetizers here before the main course. Um, we've been following with something like shock and awe, the meteoric and now continually tectonically interesting sales of Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't know how many metaphors I just mixed that right there. Was... But I just, I kind of, uh, My brain I got out of control. Yeah, broke I know, it's not fair to do that to you when you're on a pseudofedrine. But Jeff, none of them were agricultural metaphors, no, which I know. is also some I'll, kind we'll of come, record for you. We'll come back to Earth here in a second. But Fifty Shades of Grey this week, the trilogy, so all three books, crossed the 100 million unit mark Ooh. in sales, which... Uh, Puts it in league with Harry Potter, Twilight, and the Nancy Drew books. Good company, as, that. And, and as if that weren't enough, this has happened in now less than two years. The series, mm-hmm. Vintage acquired the series in March 2012. And then a few weeks later, turned around and printed the books. So it's less than two years, 100 million copies. Um, and there you go. And, and there's, I don't know what else to say I about mean, it, it except you have to you have to mark these kinds of truly things. Truly, there is no denying that this is a phenomenon now. Like we've talked about this on several shows, but uh, a, a thing that I have noticed is that anytime we talk about Fifty Shades of Grey, even in passing on Book Riot, we hear from people who are like, "Oh, it just doesn't matter." But the thing is. You don't have to like the book, but anytime a book sells 100 million copies or a, ser- a series sells 100 million copies, that is a thing that matters in, in a like, sign of what's happening in the industry way, in a lots of people at Random House got big bonuses because of this, and so actual lives were actually changed way, but also 100 million copies. That is, it's, it's so far from being nothing to sneeze at, whether you like it or not, and you don't have to like it. Uh, right. it, it. We cannot deny that this is an important thing that happened to books. 
Well, if you think about just, let's just take the content of the books out of for a minute, which you can't do, but just for denote the money involved, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Because they're, even though they're trade paperbacks, so they're not hardcovers, you know, they run, I don't know what the cover price is, 12 bucks, 15 you, bucks, It's usually like $14.99 for a new paperback, yeah. something like so that. So let's say it's just 12 bucks, call it even with discounting across. So you're looking at $1.2 billion mm-hmm. in sales. About half that is going to go to Random House. Um, about t- 20% it goes to E.L. James herself, and the rest goes into bookstores and retail outlets of, of various kinds. So just the cash infusion um, that Fifty Shades has offered the industry at a time when a lot of people are wondering about publishing, you know, you have to think that Fifty Shades at least marks that there is a market for books. Yes. Um, whether or not you like this particular one, you know, a lot of people don't, but I don't care about you right now. <laughs> I'm talking about just like, this is a lot of money thrown at books mm-hmm. um, in a short period of time. And uh, it, it's is worth noticing. And we're, it's going to be interesting to see how long the tail is. Like, does it fall precipitously? Does it sort of have a steady drumbeat of sales? The movies are going to come out. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. But uh, a, a heck of a, a heck of a, a heck of yeah. a result so far. Yeah, anytime a book breaks through that sort of barrier and goes beyond being read by book people and starts to be read by everyone because they want to talk about it with their friends and their neighbors and at the salon and around the water cooler. That's a a meaningful thing. And uh, this is just the latest book to have done that. But such a, I mean, such a, that's just a huge amount of books to sell and a a huge amount of money. And the link that we're referring to also notes that um, anecdotally booksellers are saying that readers are paying little attention to other erotica titles. Um, and so they believe that the readers who sort of busted out and tried Fifty Shades of Grey have not necessarily also just become rabid fans of that genre or that type of story. Um, but things are returning to normal, mm-hmm. um, whatever you take that to mean. We certainly haven't seen another erotica series do what Fifty Shades of Grey has done, but there have been many that uh, m- many published in an attempt to ride those coattails. Yeah, though it does, and maybe for a variety of other reasons, and uh, you know, it's it's a mistake I think to lump erotic and romance in together. But it does feel like there's a little bit of um, upsurge in the interest and acceptability, and just sort of visibility around books, around romance and erotica. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's um, real or I'm just on the lookout for it. So it's one of our favorite kinds of biases, confirmation bias. But um, I think that's well, it. Maybe it might be not be a spike in acceptability, but maybe kind of an erosion of uh, some taboo and discomfort around it. Yeah, sure. If it becomes acceptable to talk about a a BDSM novel at the neighborhood dinner party, then all of a sudden it's not nearly as difficult to talk about like the relatively chaste Regency romances that you Mm -hmm. also (laughs) (laughs) enjoy. Like we jumped way over the line of comfort and now we're sort of maybe backpedaling a bit, but it does, uh, it has destigmatized romance reading and erotica reading. Um, Yeah, I think that's fair. If nothing else, that's that's a really great thing. Um, Speaking of romance reading, uh, we should do our first sponsor. And Swoon Reads is back. We've talked about them on the show before. Swoon Reads is a new model of publishing that's dedicated to finding undiscovered talent by harnessing the power of a community of readers. Uh, You can find them at swoonreads.com if you love to write romance, to read romance, or both. Uh, You can read full-length YA romance manuscripts that were submitted. And uh, the folks at Swoon Reads, when they launched promised that if something really fantastic was submitted to the site, which of course they were hoping it would be, they would publish it. Uh, Swoon Reads is run by uh, Macmillan. 
And that has happened. So they uh, recently announced that their first trade paperback original, which is called A Little Something Different, will come out from Sandy Hall in the fall of 2014. It's a sweet contemporary romance about two college students who don't realize that they are meant to be. And it's told from 14 different points of view, uh, which rotating narratives is a thing that I cannot resist. So I'm, uh, I'm intrigued there. But if this sounds good to you, if you read romance, if you write romance, if you do a little bit of both or you want to be involved, Involved in the making of new romance books and getting a chance to read manuscripts and provide feedback on them, you can check out swoonreads.com. They're also active all over social media. So um, give them a shout out, let them know that we sent you, uh, and they'll continue to support the show as well. So that's Swoon Reads. Um, more of their titles will be announced in March and April. So uh, lots of good stuff coming from them. Swoonreads.com. Thanks so much. And, and romance um, has been a, a vibrant community and retail channel for a while. But I, I do have to wonder, like, are, is Macmillan doing Swoon Reads without $1.2 billion <laughs> of money and Fifty Shades of Grey and people talking about romance? I, I don't know. Maybe they would be, but it's it's certainly um, interesting to think about. All right, let's pick up a two little straggler follow-up things. Mm-hmm. Um, Amanda and I talked last week about uh, the Falls Church Virginia Library that had put exercise bikes in. And a reader wrote in to say, my library does something really cool, and her library is in Edmonton. And I'm sorry, I, I forgot her name, and I don't have my notes, but uh, thank you so much for whoever sent it in. Um, they have light therapy lamps in the library. Excellent. So in the, in the cold dark of the Canadian winter, you can go in and sit at a chair, a reading chair, and they have these special light um, you know, fixtures that do a special, I guess, frequency of light that's supposed to be, you know, mimic daylight to some mm-hmm. degree. Um, they got a thousand dollar grant and from what is probably the coolest sounding foundation in all the land, <laughs> it's the Edmonton Awesome Foundation. Can we have one of those? I, I think, you know, uh, um, yeah, we need one of those. We need the but Book Riot Awesome Awards. It's a city, it's a city foundation, which grants a thousand dollars each month, a city based project to make Edmonton awesome. Um, so just one of the many things libraries do that are great. And if you've got one, you know of a library that does something like this, um, that adds something to their library that just isn't books or the normal things we, the normal awesome things we expect, uh, extra awesome things. Um, and then Barnes & Noble, as you, you listeners know, we track Barnes & Noble uh, very carefully. We care about them and use them sort of as a bellwether canary. I'm not sure. I, I may have messed that up. I don't, I don't think that's right. Uh, <laughs> For <laughs> someday for we're going to have a show with no analogies. Yeah, no, it's not going to. Uh, that w- that's about as likely as no. Okay, I won't go there. <laughs> um, Barnes and Noble released their most recent revenue, and not to sort of be a CNBC, but um, two interesting numbers there: sixty-three million dollar profit in the quarter. Okay. Um, which you know it's hard to take out a no without context, but last quarter. Uh, last year, the same quarter, there was a $3.7 million loss. So that's a big turnaround there. Things um, are looking up. Looking up. Same store comp revenue is down 6.3%. All right. So what that means is that they're cutting costs and being more efficient. Mm-hmm. So they're not making as much total money, but making more profit. The other story is that Nook is getting destroyed. Totally destroyed. It totally fits. destroyed. They're laying off more people. We talked about this before, and some other things happened too. But <sighs> yeah, I mean... Change is going to come. It'll change going to come. Yeah, that's right, as uh, our friend Sam said. Um, so it, I think it's just a matter of time before Nook is sold or spun off or shuttered because it's really mm-hmm. it's really weighing them down, and they need to get rid of that to move forward. So, all right, so those are a couple of things we follow up. Now. 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 
<laughs> do you want to do the intro? I me do. do okay. I will do the intro. Uh, there is a, a, a yearly thing called the Vida Count. It's V-I-D-A, but uh, the good folks at Vida let us know that that doesn't stand for anything and it's not an acronym for anything. Oh, you know, I always wondered that. I It, doesn't... it means nothing. <laughs> okay. All right. Gotcha. <laughs> I learned it this week. It means... I kind of wish they were Wyla. But anyway, that's uh, all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah anyway. Women in okay. So yeah. um, the Vita count comes out every year about this time, and it looks at gender parity in book reviewing and literary journals from the previous year. So uh, this past week, we got the counts for 2013, and they look at um, you know the big big newspapers like the New York Times down to um, literary journals and the ones that they they choose the ones that they believe are the biggest and the most influential and important um, and they do acknowledge this is a subjective thing also they have limited people and limited time and resources so they can't count everything uh, but it is interesting to see over the course of several years how things change or don't change. So they look at the um, the gender of authors reviewed, the gender um, parity of the book reviewers, and then the overall. Um, so like for the New York Times in 2013, overall, um, there were, let's see. You're looking at the Times? Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to do fuzzy math. Overall, 725 female uh, females represented, 894 uh, male mentions and one transgender person uh, broken out by yeah, 393 so, uh, book reviews written by females and 412 book reviews written by men. And then of the books that were reviewed, 332 were written by women and 482 were written by men. And they do this for all of these publications. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, so it, I guess the top line story, I think, is that things over versus 2012, they didn't do a straight up comparison, uh, Vita. But I think most of us who have paid attention to this for a while noticed like this is slightly better mm-hmm. than we've seen in the past, especially the New York Times, especially Paris Review. Um, they really went out of their way to change things. And they've talked about that openly. Mm-hmm. Um, when I linked it, or I was mucking about on Twitter when this came out, and I think the number that... <laughs> I don't, I don't want to say bellwether number for it, but the New York Times um, authors reviewed. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of the one I use as the the lodestar for looking at all of it. So it's about fifty nine percent male um, right now. Be, do you do you know do you understand what I'm getting at there a little bit? Like if you uh, want to sum, think... if you want to break it all down, like the New York Times, and this is the uh, the books that they're reviewing. So that's. That, that lies at a confluence of a couple of things. The New York Times' own sort of editorial decisions. It's a confluence of the kinds of books that make it into the hands of New York Times book reviewers, the kinds of books that get published, the kinds of books, uh, the, the gender breakdown of the kinds of book that gets published, the gender breakdown of the kind of people that, you know, the, the genders of people who submit to agents at mm-hmm. all. Like it all kind of comes together right there. It's, I think the easier thing for a publication to control is the book reviewers. You know they can you know they can pick people and assign there. Mm-hmm. Um, they are somewhat at the mercy of the larger publishing industry, I think, uh, in well, the breakdown of the authors. There was yeah, that there are was publishing. another study that one of our readers linked to on Facebook that I'll have to find that showed that more books were published with male authors than with female authors. So certainly there are more books by men yeah. available to reviewers, and so newspapers can control. Um, the gender of the reviewers that they choose. And then if you're an assigning editor, you can choose uh, 
to make sure that you're assigning equal numbers of books by men and books by women to your male and female reviewers mm-hmm. and doing your best to create parity. And, and we can talk about the numbers there. I think, well, I think what you're, what I think that you're trying to get at with the New York times thing is inarguably they remain the most powerful slash yes. important publication for book reviewing. Um, in America, in America, Wh- whether they actually have that impact is a different question, but they are certainly perceived as the most important, the most um, powerful. That's the publication of note that the publishing industry pays attention to. Um, if your book got reviewed there or not can affect your next book deal, that sort of sort of thing. Um, and, and so if they are making changes to have more parity in the ways that they present present books by men and books by women and in the um, reviewers that they select, that's an important sign for what else is going on in the industry and and what Vita is trying to change. And now we're seeing Vita um, being able to affect and to push change by pointing out these discrepancies and pointing out inequalities and then challenging publications to do better. And as you mentioned, that's what happened. The Paris Review's numbers from 2012 were not great. And uh, Vita just I, I also really like Vita just makes these numbers available. They don't offer too much commentary. They let the numbers speak for themselves. And, and then and of they course, sure do, boy. They really do. The numbers speak for themselves. And then the readers see that and go to push for them. And it looks like this year it's going to be the New Republic that takes it. And I've I've seen the New Republic taking criticism already on Twitter the last few days. Their numbers are not fantastic and, and are really skewed towards... Oh, they're hor- yeah. uh, horrible <laughs> shit. I mean, not fantastic. They're really, really skewed towards men Here, in, I'll give in you all the worst possible one. ways. Here's the book reviewers. I think when I linked to it, when I was... I said, this is the worst slide. Mm-hmm. The New Republic book reviewers, 2013... 55 dudes, four ladies. That, my dear, is not okay. And I'm speaking to the New Republic as dear um, because you really need to – I'm scolding it's you. It's like, oh, they're there. Yeah, I know. Well, who else is on our wall of shame here? Let's just get this over with. The New York Review of Books. New York Review of Books has to go sit in the corner and mm-hmm. stay there. The London Review of Books oh, is yeah. shameful. McSweeney's, surprisingly. Mc, yeah, and Believer, mm-hmm. not as bad as the, the worst offenders that we just named, um, but – the Believer and McSweeney's um, super bad job, guys. Also, I mean, I don't know what else to say. The Virginia Quarterly Review, real mm-hmm. not great, Bob. No, not great, Bob. <laughs> not great, Bob. Uh, the New Yorker. Yeah. Bad job. Mm-hmm. Um, let me give you that number because I know a lot of our uh, subway riding friends read The New Yorker. So let's see. Um, Ooh, and Harper's Bazaar and The Atlantic. Yeah. Uh, overall for The New Yorker, 555 dudes. 253 ladies. That's just, that's yeah. chunk. Um, that's just junk. These I don't are just know what pie, else to chart, say. pie charts of sadness, man. I, let's, okay. So we did the wall of shame. Um, and again, you don't get, you don't get cookies for being 50% or greater. Like this isn't really about, you know, giving pat on the head for people who are doing what they should be doing anyway, but it is worth noting mm-hmm. N plus one poetry magazine, poetry magazine, Tin house is doing a nice job. The Kenyan Review is pretty close. The, the Gettysburg, Gettysburg Review. Callaloo, Con- which is an African-American literary journal that I read. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the, smaller, the, the smaller lit mags tend to do better. Mm-hmm. The um, ninth they, letter looks pretty good. Yeah, it looks pretty good. Um, of the big, the big names, I mean, really of the big names, it's the New York Times and the Paris Review mm-hmm. that do the best. Um, so let's see, we'll link and you can take and a look you can, here. And, you can dive in and, and 
look at these pie charts and have your own moments of sadness. Um, I, I think there's a couple big stories to this. And one is that this is making a difference, um, yes. that we're not just guessing if it's making a difference, but that publications are acknowledging that they are being held accountable for gender equity by a third party, um, that members of the publishing industry and the reading community at large are holding them accountable. And then many publications like the Paris Review are responding to that pressure to do what is just the right thing um, and, you know, start treating books by men and books by women equitably and giving um, female book reviewers more opportunities to get in there and do that or female essay writers, um, uh, you know, allowing for uh, women to have the same kinds of opportunities that men have in the industry. And, and you said something that we've been talking about all week, which is you don't get cookies for doing the right thing, mm-hmm. which uh, sort of leads into the next two stories that we right. have on our agenda. And the the first of those next two is a follow-up piece from Ron Charles at the Washington Post that looks at the National Book Awards. And over the last 60 years, his headline says, women have made steady progress with the National Book Awards. And uh, it's a nice chart to see. Uh, it's real sad in the 1950s, the, mm. uh, the men versus women who uh, made the finalists and the long lists for the National Book Awards. And then in by the 2010s, more books by women than books by men uh, were making the finals and the long lists. But I have huge problems with the framing of this. It's not, Mm -hmm. this is the wrong headline. Women have not made steady progress here. It's committees, the committees who select these National Book Award long lists and finalists are the ones making progress. Women have always been rad and have always been writing great books. Um, There's the last line or one of the last lines is an interview that, um, Ron Charles conducted with Harold Augenbrom, who's the executive director of the National Book Foundation. And he says he doesn't know what accounts for the steady progress of women among the finalists and the winners. Really? There's, you have no idea what accounts for Well, this? because the 50s are the same as right now. <laughs> so there's really no way to know what's changed. Yeah. I don't know. How, how could you possibly know? How I don't could, know. I it mean. Seems impossible. It's, it's almost like there wasn't a movement for this. <laughs> yeah. I'm, it's just the wrong headline. This is a good story, ultimately, that the National Book Awards are recognizing works created by women and are not biased towards works created by men. But to phrase it as women making the progress is just, no, the, it's, this is, it's the wrong story. And it's then the to, National Book Awards being less of a jerk. To let lady. the executive director off with, we don't know what accounts for this is no one thinking about it like <laughs> i <laughs> i just i'm i just cannot with that headline um for many many reasons change has happened uh, there are reasons that change occurs there are agents of change and it's not an accident um mm-hmm. or like some fluke to be observed and puzzled over how we got here with more books by women making the finals for the national book awards i'm I'm very frustrated. I am also frustrated um, because Ron Charles was very upset that the Washington Post was not included in the Vita count and spent a lot right. of, spent a lot of time earlier this week arguing publicly on Twitter with the Vita people who spent their whole day on Monday and Tuesday explaining or linking back to their limitations page why they can't count everything. Um, so I, I think that the Washington Post gets my bad job old dudes award mm. this week because 
like an honorary mention because we got to keep the real <laughs> one for the um, the London Review of Books and the New York Book Review. Right, but right. Yeah. yeah, you get honorary mention. Um, sort of the third piece that then explains that is the good people at Publishers Lunch, who have tons and tons of book review data, decided to crunch some of their numbers because the Vita counts look at, um, I think, the big weekend book reviews, but not the yeah. dailies. And Publishers Lunch people have all the, da the daily information, too. So they contributed to this conversation and are furthering what Vita has done and it's kind of a cool collaboration to watch happen in real time. But they looked at the breakdown um, by the top reviewers. And it turns out that for gender balance, Ron Charles of the Washington Post um, is the most balanced in mm -hmm. reviewing books and uh, by men and books by women. So that's great, but it's the bare minimum. Right. And you don't get a cookie and it's not cool to stomp around about your publication not getting featured. Look at me being decent. Right. I'm My, my publication has equality and I want you to count it and tell people about it because we have equality like that's i understand sort of the urge that that comes from but it misses the larger point of what vita is doing which is to try to point out where the problems are and to push for change you know i you don't call me up at the end of every work day and congratulate me for not screwing up that day <laughs> yeah i should start would that would that help i don't know um yeah i don't like that i don't like that at all i think if you're doing what you can and you feel good about what you're doing in this regard, you just shut up and let the story develop on its own and let people talk about and, it. And you, do you don't this. try to insert yourself into it. Um, you don't try to make yourself or make yourself look good. I'm not actually super in love with the National Book Award, frankly, for, you know, piping in um, mm -hmm. on the day after this and saying, look how great things have gone for us. <laughs> but I mean, we have no that, idea why. And we have no idea why. It, not even our fault or credit. Uh, here's just this thing. I mean, do it eventually, but like, let Vita have its thing. And we don't need, listen. You know what? If if the Washington Post and the National Book Award. Well, this is what you should really be looking if at. If they want to like fund Vita so they can have more employees and more time and more resources to count more publications, do that. But mm -hmm. know that the Vita count is not about you or your one publication. It's about looking at what's happening in the industry. And, and the Vita folks have really, you know, been open and I think very uh, patient with responses on Twitter, but have also acknowledged that um, they are hearing from a lot of men who are upset about their methodology, um, which yeah, they, this is what happened. which they acknowledge transparently. There's a whole page of limitations listed on the Vita website where they explain their methodology. They explain that they know it's not perfect. Um, and perhaps if they had more money, they, and more time, and you know more people, all that stuff. Uh, they could move further towards perfect, but criticizing the details and the imperfections in a thing is a really nice diversionary tactic, especially when you're the person in the privileged position who doesn't like the results they're seeing. Right. This is not what, the, fellas. This is one isn't what's helpful. It's not helpful to nitpick the story because the story isn't going to change. The, the top line story here is that this stuff is way unfair. And everyone who has anything to do with it has to do better. Um, and that, I think maybe that one takeaway we could think about briefly on a larger scale is that there, if there's one bit of unfairness is that literary journals to some degree are at the end of the publishing food chain. Mm -hmm. And so kind of like I was saying about the New York Times total authors reviewed number, some of the inputs into the system all along the way are biased. And so it comes out, it can come out really biased at the end. Um, and to ask for a literary journal to be more equitable than publishing 
I think might be fair, but also lets publishing itself off the hook. Right. And um, which is a lot harder to trace. Like we don't have these kinds of numbers for the gender breakdowns of manuscripts submitted by mm-hmm. agents to sure. publishing houses, which would be very interesting, I think. It would. Um, or the number of manuscripts submitted to agents just from the deep blue ocean. We just don't know those kinds of things. Um, it could start way back in MFA schools where men are more willing or more encouraged to submit and get age. You know, it's just there's there's bias, significant bias all along the way. And so the whole thing at the end, you get the whole picture of the bias and it's really bad. It is really bad. So and yeah. maybe slightly better. But. There was there was another piece um, that we don't need to go too far into, but another piece that made the rounds this week about um, gender bias in bookstore displays and was an author who was very upset um, seeing Waterstones, which is a British uh, bookstore chain like Barnes and Noble, um, going in and seeing that most of the books that were featured on you know the big shelves or the fancy tables were books by men. And she broke out some numbers in that story from her mm-hmm. experience and just that feeling that, you know, to become a successful woman writer sort of makes you a unicorn in a sea of dudes. Uh, <laughs> how's that for a cold medicine metaphor? <laughs> yeah, there um, you go. But that's also a problem of what are the books that are made available and what are the books that um, publishers put money behind? And uh, and the, the point of Vita is to have this conversation about bias, not just in the publications, but I think to, to bring it back around to what's uh, where the problems are at every link along the chain, for sure. The other thing we're thinking about, I think, is the kinds of books that get reviewed, especially in the top 12 or 15 um, slides here. I'm not in terms mm-hmm. of hierarchy, but just in terms of position. You know, it's a lot of literary fiction. Yeah. Um, and I wonder how this would be different if you threw in reviews of romance books and, you mm-hmm. know, a whole bunch of different other kinds of things that, you know, the, the famously... Uh, so-called chiclet doesn't get into the pages of these things very often. And yet those move tons of units. So there's all kinds of swirling (laughs) issues here. Um, But the, the, the top line really is this is still an unbelievably recalcitrant problem, but the publications that have made a commitment to changing can change. It's not an impossible problem. Um, And then the, the, there are some, Publication still getting real pushback. There was a piece in The Guardian that was interviewing one of the editors at the LRB, the London Review of Books, and they just don't they just They just don't get it. They just don't get it. They don't they don't see themselves. They don't have any kind of self reflection. And I don't know what kind of change it needs to make there. It might need change of leadership, um, because it seems like the people mm-hmm. over there don't have any intention of doing anything differently. Um, if they even see a problem in the first place. So, we anything will, else to say about that? I mean, no, I'm really interested in what the listeners have to say once they have a chance yeah. to look at all of these pie charts of sadness and, and, you know, take a look at the publications that they're interested in, what they're surprised in. So we'll leave all the links in the show notes and you can always hit us up on Twitter or shoot us an email podcast at bookriot.com. Let us know. Um, if you're tired and, of hearing about this, we're tired of talking about it, but we're not going to stop. And you know what? Tough. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. Uh, also, if you look at these slides in one of the publications or multiple of the publications, you can write them a letter. Like Vita does a really good job of giving you the contact information. And, you know, they listen. They do. They, they'll, they'll get these. Whether or not they'll do anything. But if you subscribe to The New Yorker or The New York Times or any of these places that you'd like to see them make a, uh, a, a real change, 
um, write them because, you know, that's, that's what makes a difference in the long run is their own bottom lines too. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go to, well, I don't know if it's happier news, <laughs> but it's uh, less infuriating. Yes. So, Rebecca, why don't you, you you put this all together? You ran this, so tell us tell us what our next story is. Uh, we conduct a monthly poll with our readers of a different question every month, something that we want to hear from them. And for uh, February, we decided to ask about 2013 reading habits. Um, we just wanted to get a sense of you know who everybody is at Book Riot. Um, it was anonymous, and there were just four questions to keep things really simple. So we asked, "How many books did you read in 2013?" Did you read any ebooks? And then what percentage of your reading was print books? What percentage was ebooks? Um, I intentionally left out audiobooks just to keep things really simple to analyze. And because most of the conversations and most of the other studies that we can compare to focus on that print versus digital divide. But um, there has been an outcry, so I might include audiobooks next time. Uh, but really interesting stuff. We had uh, 2,721 Book Riot readers responded, which is. That's a nice sample. It is a nice, big, juicy sample size. Um, The average number of books read in 2013 was 75, which uh, we guessed a couple of weeks back, and I guessed 45 to 55. So I was way off. I think you were closer. I think I said 65 or so. I can't remember. We can check the tape. but uh. Uh, Yeah, the range was really huge. Um, the lowest number of books that was mentioned was two, and the highest was 1,500. Uh, I have no idea what that person (laughs) read. I'm also really regretting that I put this in the post because of all the interesting information here. Like the only thing that people seem to want to talk about is how one person reported reading 1500 books. Um, So I will just then say, we're not interested in arbitrating what counts as a book or what doesn't count. And if they read 1500 children's books or 1500 comic books or whatever, that is cool with us. Or they're a speed reader and they read, you know, short novels all day long and they're retired. Yeah. And Whatever. So the salient point is that it does not meaningfully change the data. It does the, not. The, resulting... the, um, the mode, which is the number that was reported the most, uh, was 50. So I guess I was kind of right yeah. there. More people read 50 books last year than any other um, one number of books. But I did try this analysis without that huge outlier of 1,500, and it didn't shift the average by even a fraction of a book, um, which is the beauty of having a large sample. Right. Uh, so... Don't get hung up hung up on that fifteen hundred. On average, of the people who participated in this survey, um, the number of books read in twenty thirteen was seventy five. And we've got some charts you can take a look at. Seventy five percent of our readers read at least one ebook in twenty thirteen, which is a little higher, or which is you know higher than the national average according to the Pew study, which is the major mm-hmm. um, study of reading habits. But I think pretty representative of like the kinds of people that are spending a lot of time reading about books on the internet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> at this point, exactly. it's not a crazy thing to have tried at least one ebook. Um, and on average um, of our participants, um, 69% of their reading was done in print and 28% of their reading was done digitally. Which is only slightly higher, I think, than the numbers we talked about a few weeks ago. It is. Where the um, numbers was like 23 or 24%. And I think the most interesting thing is that we, um, I also looked at who read exclusively in print and who read exclusively in ebook format. And of our readers, only 29% read exclusively in one or the other. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of Book Riot's readers are reading, reading in both print and digital. Hmm. Wow. 
Only 71% read exclusively in ebooks. So oh, two only 71 9, readers. 71 readers, yeah. would I say percent? 71 uh-huh. readers, 2.93%. And only 26% uh, read exclusively in uh, print. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'm not sure. I don't have a lot to say about this. I just realized. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's, it kind of speaks for itself I to think some it's degree. Just, it's just interesting that, I mean, that 75 number or even the median of 50 is a lot larger than the numbers from the Pew uh, research study that showed a mean of 12 and a me- uh, median of five. And Pew headlined that with the typical American reads five or read five books in the last 12 months. So the gap between Book Riot's 50 or 75 and Pew's five or 12 is is pretty significant, but not surprising. Um, no. Again, for people who frequent a book community on the internet, of course, they're more likely to to be hardcore readers who are reading um, at above the national average. I'm also not really, I don't think any of it's really surprising, um, no. but interesting to have numbers and not just to be guessing. Yeah. When, um, when uh, our friend and coworker Clint and I were thinking about starting the site way back in the day and doing our research, one number that really stuck out to us was that 20% of readers do 80% of the book buying. Mm. Um, and because there's such a difference between the mean American reader and sort of the average, I don't know if power reader is the right word, but like consistent reader. Mm-hmm. Um, so in thinking about the site, we're like, well, if we could speak to those people, like the kind of people that read 75 books in a year, um, that's an influential group. So it's kind of bearing out, you know, that the people who read about books consistently happen within that top, I don't echelon, I guess, mm-hmm. of readers and buyers. Um, what should we do? So whenever I'm teaching, I always say, if someone's at a project, what would the next project look like to follow up on this? Mm. So audiobook would be one. I what else do we want? Adding audiobooks is one. Um, buying? Buy, we've talked about buying before, but what about like how much money they think they've spent on books? I'm interested in, in where this e-reading is happening. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Yeah. Do they own e-readers? Are they reading on tablets? Their which phones. Which apps? Which, yeah, which apps are they using on tablets or on their phones? Um, I think that's an interesting follow-up question. Um, Somebody asked about number of pages, but as the move towards digital makes page tracking Uh, more difficult, that's tough. And I think I would guess that many fewer readers track their number of pages than track their number of books. And also it was interesting in the data, there is a lot of clustering around the round numbers, like 2025, 50, 75, um, which led me to guess that there were people who were estimating, you know, and and there was a lot of stuff where people put in 45 to 55. And I was like, well, that's not a number. So I'm counting it as 50. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Good. Well, I do think that 50 is kind of a magic number in people's Mm -hmm. minds for how many they read in a year because like about a book a week Um, and to do much more than that is you know a real considerable Mm. time commitment I mean a book a week is a serious one too but um, so I'm not surprised that a lot of people's either actual habits or their imagination of their habits Mm -hmm. float to 50 I I find that um, to be kind of what I expect that's not too surprising Um, I I thought it was interesting how many people were in the like 2 to 20 range. Yeah. Um, especially with that 75 average. Um, and I feel really good about that. The thing that we like, I'm just going to honk our own horn for a second, but a, a thing that we talk about with Book Riot is wanting it to be 
a place for anybody who thinks about themselves as being a reader or being a person who cares about books. Um, mm -hmm. And that there's no magic number of how many books you have to read in a year to qualify for that. We talk a lot also about how there's no such thing as a quote unquote real reader, like real mm -hmm. readers do X and everybody else who doesn't do that is not a real reader. Um, so I think it's great that, you know, you can read two books a year and be a person to whom books are really meaningful. You can also read 1500 books in a year and be a person to whom books are really meaningful. And if there's a, like a message that I would like to pound out from our pulpit. It's that, you know, that there's room uh, in the reading community for all of those people. And the, um, it's important that we make room for all of those people mm -hmm. and for reading all kinds of, of books and for everybody's definition of what it is to be a passionate reader. Um, just in terms of statistical models, it's interesting to look at the books read in 2013, where you graphed um, the number of books against the number of people saying they read that number of yeah. books. And, you know, in, in normal sort of distribution models, we have this thing called the bell curve, right, where you expect um, it to, to have a big hump in the middle and then come all the way down and be somewhat symmetrical. Well, if you cut off it from zero to about 80, it does kind of look like a bell curve to mm -hmm. some degree. But then 80 to 140, it's not, I would find it, I would have not guessed the shape that it is. It's more of a, it definitely declines, but it's not even yeah. all the way out to about 150 um, and you remove the outliers mm -hmm. there, which I think was smart. Um, so it's interesting to think that the shape of the, I don't know what you call this, the extreme readers, let's call them. I fall into the, I, I'm kind of right now, right in the middle of our community in terms of books read, but that there is a a more robust and longer tail out towards about 150 books mm -hmm. um, that I find interesting to think about. So that's one that I wouldn't, that's a, probably the most surprising thing to me is that shape of the extreme reading uh, isn't doesn't neatly fit into a model I would have thought about. Okay, should we do Squarespace, our next sponsor, yeah, coming back to us? Thank you for coming back to us, Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio, or you're just really good-looking amateur or personal mm -hmm. website. So I want to tell you more about Squarespace in a second, but just so you know, for a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code Readers. That's easy to remember. So Squarespace is an awesome way to get your website up and looking good and proud. It's something you can be proud of. They've got all kinds of features. They're developing it all the time. You may have even seen their Super Bowl ad. I saw them like, hey, we know those guys. Squarespace, advertise <laughs> yeah. with us. They're a serious, big, professional organization. And their goal really is to make it easy and fun to make your own website. They've got a lot of great designs that you can start with and you can just sort of, you go with those, they're really great looking right out of the box and you can customize them, change the color, font, spacing, everything that works for you. You can start with, there's 20 templates to start out with and you can customize them. You can drag and drop one section from another. You can resize it right there. You can see the changes as you're making them, which is really great. Um, they've won a whole bunch of awards from uh, the FWA and the Webbies and Forbes. A lot of people who care about websites and web design think Squarespace is pretty awesome. Uh, it's really easy to use. And But everyone knows, it. like, if you're in the market for an off-the-shelf product like Squarespace to make your own website, you're probably like, Rebecca and I not mm -hmm. like super interested in messing with the CSS or HTML. I don't even know what those things are. I just know <laughs> to say them. You don't want to mess with that stuff. And you're like me, mortally terrified of screwing it all up. Yep. Well, you probably, you might. Even with Squarespace, you could do something dumb because but. we are humans. But Squarespace, they make their, their bread and butter is their support. 
24 hours a day, seven days a week. They have over 70 full-time people right over here on the island of Manhattan that are ready and willing and excited to come talk to you, uh, to have you call them and help you out. Actual human beings. Actual human beings. They're right there. So you do pay a monthly fee for this. It's, you know, eight bucks, 10 bucks a month, depending on what you use our 10% off or not. Um, but the difference between paying that and $0 for some of the competitor blogging platforms out there just makes a world of difference. And I think it's the kind of thing that if you're going to put your time into and make something that looks good, it's worth the money. You're, you're really going to get your money's worth and more out of it. Um, so back in the fall when Squarespace was with us the first time, we asked if any of you had tried Squarespace or had um, had Squarespace before the sponsor of the show. And um, someone wrote in, their website is rotmbooks.com. It's a restaurant of the mind books. And it is an online used bookstore hmm. that he runs using a Squarespace site. Um, he didn't say if I could use his name or not, so I'm not going to say it. But you can probably find it on here if you want to. You can see it's a it's a simple but really nice-looking site. The, image, the images look great. That's one thing that mm -hmm. Squarespace is specifically working um, uh, or uh, want to make it easy for you to work with. So many of us want to put a bunch of pictures up on our sites, and there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Um, but this one, you can browse very easily. Nice, high-quality image, very clear typography. Um, and it's just really easy to use. And there's also built-in e-commerce um, on Squarespace. And you can see that exemplified on Restaurant of the Mind books. You can go click on a thing, uh, one of the titles, and add it to cart, and they can help you check out. So if you're looking to sell something, um, but you don't want to do Stripe or Square integration yourself, you can use Squarespace's e-commerce platform that's built in. It's no extra charge. It's part of your regular monthly fee. So Check out Squarespace if you need a website. What else can I say? That's all, that's all I got yep, for you. Squarespace.com and the offer code again is readers. That lets them know that you came from us and it supports the show. So hopefully they'll be back. All right. All right. You want to tell me mm. something good. Well, hmm. let's go right to Hero of the Week. All right. You found this story. I did. Well, I found it that someone else found. I mean, come on, let's not give myself too much credit. <laughs> Jeff, I mean, you can internet. Good job. I mean, I'm great, but come on. Um, <laughs> So Blake Ansari, a uh, student, a first grader he's in Manhattan. Six. He's a little six-year-old. Six um, he started, he finally, he kind of got an impression. He's awakened to the fact that there are a lot of homeless kids in New York. Um, and his mom, Asterita, showed him a story in the New York Times that probably many of you may have seen. Um, it was an amazing multi-part story about a homeless girl named Dasani and kind of using her as a lens to look at the homeless problem in New York. And it's a big one, and it's negative eight degrees here today, and I feel and I cannot imagine what their lives mm -hmm. are like right now. And Blake, um, showing the wisdom of someone 10,000 times more mature than I am, said, you know what? That also means they don't have a library. I mean, come on. <laughs> So he started making some phone calls to see if anything could be done. Um, they had some trouble finding a shelter that would take donations. But finally, the office of Manhattan Borough President, I want to name her, Gail Brewer. Good job, Gail Brewer. Good job, Gail Brewer. Um, they found a family shelter in the Bronx, which would be happy to accept donations as kind of be a hub for a homeless library. So uh, right now, the, their first drive netted about 600 books, um, and they're still working on it. So I'm going to put a link into the show notes. If you want to, if you want to um, help donate, 
you know, there's, you know, we all have some books we could, we could find a better home for. And, you know, it's also a good time of year to think about people that don't have a home. In the U.S., there are approximately 1.2 million school-age children who are homeless. Um, and this kid is doing better than all of us. So good job, Blake. Uh, you're our hero and keep up the good work. I'm just going to sit here with my goosebumps and try not to cry. Yeah. I don't know what else to say, Blake. I mean, that's a heck of a job. Um, he thought about someone who he, you know, kind of made a connection. I had never really thought about this. Mm -hmm. Um, homeless people, uh, you know, oftentimes don't have street addresses and therefore don't have identifications and therefore can't get library cards. Um, and you know, a lot of things that libraries provide are super helpful in finding employment and public services. Um, and maybe that's something we should think about as a society is figuring out a way for people that don't have uh, ID on them to get mm -hmm. some help. So thank you so much, Blake, for uh, being a awesome kid we and uh, thinking about thinking about the world in a good way. Oof. Nice I, to I have held such it, a I held it together story. there. I was getting, I was getting close to I know, uh, I'm, breaking that baby down. I, uh, I'd be fragile on that one any week, but in my, especially in my, like, weekend state. <laughs> my weekend state, I was, I'm glad that you told that one. Um, I'm just in awe of a kid that, uh, that creative and that thoughtful and compassionate. And I, he might just win our hero of the year. That's I hard, guess that's going to be hard. It's to beat. pretty hard to top. Unless so, you like save children out of a burning orphanage, orphanage using a book, it's going to be tough to beat that one. Even so, um, yep. Well, do we want to do one more story before new books or what do you want to do? You know, I think we should just leave our stories this week with the feel good. I was going to say, where do you go from? I mean, you where don't. do you go? You we don't go just nowhere. Bask in the, you know, warm glow of a very smart kid um, who's doing a great thing. So let's leave our, our stories with Blake on Sorry. Let's leave it there. Okay. Uh, and we just have one new book to talk about this week. Mm. February has been. The cruelest of months for well, slow month, slow, slow month, month for not, books on not the whole bad for... books, just not a ton of, you know, really big new ones. But, but, but new short stories by Lori Moore. That's a big deal. It's such a big deal. It's like, a, I mean, for me, it's like a holiday. Lori Moore mm -hmm. um, was one of the first writers who, whose short stories taught me that I loved short stories. That was a thing I didn't think I would enjoy until I encountered her collection, Birds of America. And this new collection is called Bark. And it's it's hard to describe Lori Moore. Like, you know, when you talk about Karen Russell, it's like, well, they're weird. And she has this great language <laughs> and these dark premises. And Lori Moore's work is very concerned with domestic matters, but sort of with the dark side of our relationships or the difficult parts of of home relationships and contemporary life um and there's just this really carefully observed quality like uh the things that you know your best friend must think about you when they've seen you in your weakest moment but they love you too much to say out loud like mm -hmm. Lori moore says those things about her characters and you see yourself and the people that you know in those observations. And it's just really brilliant. Um, definitely, you know, it's, this is literary fiction at its best, um, and short fiction at its best for, um, sort of what the form is. I love, I, I loved it. I kind of think of her, I mean, she's not the same as Alice Monroe, of course, but kind of in the lineage of Alice yeah, Monroe. Yeah. I think that's good. Of uh, the American, uh, slightly younger, um, well, I mean, considerably younger, but she's in that tradition of the master of uh, 
sort of everyday kind of short mm-hmm. stories. Um, she's as good as it gets. Yeah, she I doesn't mean, need. I was say, she doesn't need stories. a weird hook. No, she doesn't, doesn't need, need a crazy it. premise. Not that it's bad. To have no, a weird no, hook. no. But just Lori Moore needs no bells and whistles. Yeah, Lori Moore. If you were drafting a team of writers and your goal was to just describe. Uh, something that happened to you today that was unremarkable in a remarkable way. Mm-hmm. I think probably Lori Moore is your number one overall draft pick. I think so. I mean, who else? I mean, I, I've sort of just made this up on the spot, but uh, it's like, who are you going to get besides her? Maybe Marilyn Robinson, um, oh. who we both love. It's, it's uh, you know, you can fight out mm-hmm. one there. It's like LeBron James or Kevin Durant, whichever way you want to go, you're going to win. Um, but that's that's great. It's not very long, right? It's a short collection. It is uh, about average size. <laughs> Hang on. Are you doing, a, you're doing it as a galley, aren't you? No, you no, no, you I, well, no I'm reading idea. it digitally, but I have a paper copy right here, actually, on my desk. It's 192 pages, so it's not a average. Short, that's right. short. Sorry, it's but the hardcover has these be- has the beautiful like thick paper and the deckled uh, edges, so it looks like a thicker book. But yeah, 192 pages. So um, I think if you're on the short story fence and you're like, what is a good short story supposed to be? You pick up Lori Moore and then, you know, if you don't really dig how she does it, you know, you should try some other short stories just to be sure, but it might not be your thing. And uh, you- uh, have you read all the Lori Moore? Do not you- all of them. I did. So, I've, I haven't read the new one, so I can't say, but um, I always say if people are interested in Lori Moore to start with birds of America, mm-hmm. that's the one I always sort of. Yeah. Go, well, that was that. my like conversion moment. Yeah. So, I mean, try bark for sure. But if you want to start with Lori Moore, well, we didn't, it's not really a start here situation. <laughs> try bark. You say it's great. I believe you, but birds of America is the one that I always say, yeah, that's try that one. one right there. And that one is available from vintage. And I'm trying to remember, I think that's yeah, three hundred and four pages. So it's a you know, it's a good it's a good size. Um all right, well that's, that's our show. show. That is our show. I'm still well, upright. I was gonna say you've done a heck of a job <laughs> that's playing through pain, that's combat pay, um, whatever other kind of um uh plaudits you should get for uh duty above and beyond the call. Um, what, what should we tell the people about? You know, you can find us all uh, over the internet. You can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Uh, you can follow Book Riot on Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr and Pinterest. Uh, yep. I am at Rebecca Shinsky on Twitter, and you are at Reading Ape. I am. You That's are. me still. Mm-hmm. The, my long, my long lost blog uh, was called the Reading Ape, and I just kept my Twitter handle. Let's see, show notes, show notes are yeah, show at notes. bookriot.com slash podcast. And um, you can find the show notes, all the stories that come back here. If you have a Squarespace page uh, or have trying one out and want to show it off, we'd love to look at it and talk about it the next time Squarespace is a sponsor. And uh, we sold all our quarterly boxes. We did. Uh, so we thank you so much if you uh, signed up for a that. A huge but. response. And if you signed up, then you're going to get awesome mail from us in a couple yeah. of weeks. Uh, if you want to take a minute to rate or review the show on iTunes, that will help other people to find us. And it also helps us let us know uh, how you think we're doing. We read all the reviews. We've taken some of the feedback to heart there. Um, and we certainly appreciate you know the time you take to listen to us and also to give us your thoughts. And we're working on a lot of other stuff, but we we can't talk about any of it yet. I just realized. I yes. feel like there's something else we should talk about. Secret projects, it's man. All, there's a lot that's not ready. you got to wait a few months, but we'll have other stuff to talk about that's fun and cool. So as always, thank you so much for listening to the show. And Rebecca, I will talk to you next week. Have a good one. Bye.